From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We had the chance to go on the road again and meet Coloradans across the state, socially distanced and masked, to talk about life beyond the pandemic. In La Junta and Rocky Ford, we met young people who bucked the trend of moving to the city and who've recommitted themselves to their communities. It's special, not just because it's a rural region. It is unique in its own right. In Fort Morgan, bilingualism creates connection. And in Colorado Springs, a neighborhood that may be gone, but not forgotten. They ran the trains. They built the buildings. They hauled the trash. These are people that literally built Colorado Springs. Plus, a Pueblo musician scores our road trip. On the road again. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. On the road again Just can't wait to get on the road again This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. As the year winds down, we want to listen back to stories from a project that's very special to us. We took our show on the road again to see how Coloradans were faring in a pandemic that just won't relent. In August, masked and safely distanced, we hit the highway. Our first stops, Rocky Ford and La Junta, where we met young people who defy the stereotype of the farm kid leaving for the big city. 20-year-old Jaden Rice is with the Small Business Development Center in La Junta. Julie Worley mentors young entrepreneurs across the region. Julie, you've lived in southeast Colorado for almost half a century. Uh, why, do you, why did you see entrepreneurship as the best way to keep younger folks in the region? I saw it as an opportunity, as is the case and across the nation. Uh, young people are graduating high school and then leaving their small rural communities to go to the city or somewhere else to live and work and raise their families. I see and we know from the program that I've worked with that young people want to stay, usually want to stay in their home communities. They want their kids to go to school in schools like they attended. They want to live in a small town where they have family connections and just neighbor connections. And I saw Southeast Colorado. It's a very similar landscape. It's where I was raised in Western Nebraska as an opportunity to put a program, an entrepreneurship program in place here and begin to change the culture, which takes years to get the kids to realize that they could have a career, a business. They could live here and live and work and raise their families here. Well, now, I heard inherently a, almost a contradiction in what you said there, which is that young people often leave rural communities, and yet you say they want to stay. Uh, help us understand that. Okay, I'll help you understand that in, back in uh, the spring of 2015, the program that I work with, we interviewed over 1,850 10th graders in all the schools across the six counties in southeast Colorado, and among many questions, one of the questions we asked them was, if there was an opportunity, a business or a job 
or something that you could live and work in southeast Colorado, how many of, of those 1,850 kids would want to stay? And there was 43% of them that wanted to stay. So it's not 50%, but it was 43%. And we were very encouraged by that because there's obviously a segment of young people out there that want to stay in their rural communities. Even though it is the trend to leave and go to the big city or someplace else. Well, I'm very curious, Jaden Rice, if that includes you. Were you someone who wanted to stay but felt like um, maybe the opportunities weren't as available in Southeast Colorado? Yes. So I always wanted to continue rural living, and I am very close with my extended family, many of whom live here in Southeast Colorado. But I did not see a tangible way that I could really find a fulfilling career without leaving and at least getting an education outside of the region. Did you at all end up leaving? No, I have not. I've gotten my education here in the Valley through online curriculum and initially through junior college here. And through the college, I found a career that has really been very fulfilling for me, and I don't see myself ever leaving. And that career actually is helping develop small business, uh, not unlike what Julie does. Yes, it's through the Small Business Development Center, which is a nationwide program, but is very rarely utilized. Very few people actually know that we exist. I mean, I had operated small businesses all through junior high and high school, and I had never heard of this free service that there was available. And what is it? So we offer free consulting services to all small businesses, and then very low-cost curriculums and workshops. So, you know, those services that most people would be charging $50, $75 an hour to give you marketing advice or financial advice, you can get it for free because we're a government program through the Small Business Administration. What's an example of a business owner you've mentored? And I just want to reiterate, you are a mentee of Julie Worley's, correct? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I've, I've known Julie for many years, even before I started working with youth entrepreneurship programs that she ran. So yes, she definitely did have a huge part in setting me down the path to the career that I now have. But one instance that immediately comes to mind is a more recent client. I started working with her this year. She was homeless because she had always done nonprofit work and never charged for it. Or almost no profit work, it sounds like. (laughs) Yes, yes, very much so. And she had been doing for others her entire life and barely scraping by. And she decided she wanted to move down here. She was up in the Denver metro area and wanted to start focusing on her art. And now she is creating tile that is miles ahead of sublimated tile. It never fades. It never wears. And she's putting her own original artwork on it. And she is making her living, doing something that she loves. Tell me about the horse motel, will you? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so Daryl, he has been a client since about one month after I started. 
and we see him about on a weekly basis. He worked for one of the prisons here and was disabled in a um, riot within the prison. Had some major back and hip and knee injuries because of that. And once he had to retire medically because of that, he decided that he was going to focus on the other part of his life, which was horses. He had bred and raised championship horses with his wife. And his now late wife's dream was always to have a horse motel where rodeoers or show jumpers or anything in between could come by and rest and their horse could have good accommodations while on the road. And so he has entirely by his own hands taken two barns on his property and made them into state-of-the-art horse motel. Um, it, it really is amazing. And he did it in a matter of two years. And he is consistently having clients booking with him now. Jaden Rice joins us from the Southeast Colorado Small Business Development Center here in La Junta, along with Julie Worley, who runs a youth entrepreneurship program in this neck of the woods. I asked Worley what it means practically to do that kind of work. Well, it means that, as you know, most kids, when they have an idea, don't have all of the information they need to get the business started. You know, I often use the example of kids that there's a group of kids in a small town here east of Lahana who want to start a student-run coffee shop. And there is a big vacant building in this town that's for sale for 150000 And the kids thought they could buy that building and put their coffee shop in there. That is in Rocky Ford? So when Ford? you ask them, uh, no, it's Manzanola. Oh, it's okay. Just, it's just uh, west of Rocky Ford. Yep. But when you ask those young students, okay, how many cups of coffee will it take to sell to pay for a $150,000 building, then they kind of, oh, my, you know. So you have to walk alongside of them and help them with finances. They have very big plans for the coffee shop, but we're kind of whittling them down slowly but surely. So as in light of your question, you have to walk alongside of them. I've always said an entrepreneur, you have to take them by the hand and you have to have a checklist from the dream of what they want to do to the sign hanging on the door open for business, and you just have to walk them through each step because they have the vision, they have the idea, but sometimes those pieces that need to fit in between the dream and the open for business just don't make sense to them. So it's not that you've dissuaded them from opening the coffee shop in Manzanola. It's that you're sort of right-sizing their dreams? Absolutely. That's exactly what we're doing, yes. Is there a market for it? Does there need to be more coffee slinging in Manzanola? Well, there is no coffee shop in Manzanola at the present time. So, yes, that would be a real opportunity for them. They really mostly want a gathering place for the young people because there's no rec center or anything other than a brand new, brand new school over there. There's nothing for the young people to do. So they would like to have kind of a gathering center for the youth and incorporate the coffee shop into it. We know that the statistics are kind of stacked against new business. And that's true in some fields more than others. I think of how difficult food service can be to survive in. What have you found are the reasons businesses either succeed or fail in southeastern Colorado in particular? Any trends you've seen over the years? Well, 
Jaden may be able to speak more to that. What I have seen is lack of cash flow within the first two or three years. They don't think that through when they start a business, and many times it's their cash flow that'll get them down. They can't pay the workers or whatever. I would say probably right as we sit here now today, it's lack of being able to get help if they need help in their mom and pop business. That is to say uh, it's hard to hire or it's just hard to afford the hiring? A little of both, but mm-hmm. right at this present time, it's hard to find workers. And it's especially hard here in the rural areas because we don't have as big a populace, obviously. But there's just so many jobs that are going unfilled here in the Valley that if you had a business and you were a, a one-man shop, you'd be the, in there from the time you open till the time you close because there's just nobody to hire. What a fascinating chicken and egg proposition, Jaden Rice. It is a uh, chicken uh, and egg proposition. <laughs> because, <laughs> Jaden, you want people to stay, even to move to Southeast Colorado. That relies to some extent on entrepreneurship. And yet, as we heard from Julie, uh, there's a, a dearth of workers. Do you want to reflect on that for me? Absolutely. For instance, last month, we assisted with holding a big career fair to help all of our small businesses recruit workers. And we had 19 businesses represented at the career fair, and we had 35 individuals walk through. Between the 19 businesses, there were over 120 job openings. (laughs) Wow. And I think one of the additional hurdles that has definitely lended itself to our shortage of workers is we have a major real estate crisis. We have no homes up for sale and we have people consistently moving into the area, very often retirees. So our few homes that we still have available are being filled up by those who are no longer going to be contributing to the workforce. And that's, that's not to say it's a bad thing, but there are individuals that want to move down here. They see how many jobs there are, but they don't have the cash to compete with the retirees. It's in every rural town across America. And in southeast Colorado, the average age of homes in our small towns is over 50 years old. There's just not a lot of new homes being built. And so, as Jaden says, people are coming in, buying up the houses. And so people that are of working age that want to either move in or they need a bigger house for their growing family can't find a place to live. There are some very robust programs being developed here in southeast Colorado now, some very innovative programs to maybe help with that housing shortage. But, of course, it's going to take a year or two to get that all going and get built up. I wonder, Jaden, what your living situation is. I know that you, one reason you decided to stay in Southeast Colorado was to be near family. Do you want to reflect just a little bit more on that for us? Yes. So I am very fortunate. My family, several years ago, bought a property with two very old farmhouses. Huh. And I am renting the smaller and older of those two farmhouses from my parents with my husband. It's a 1901 building that was then later on converted into a house. There's no air conditioning. There's no central heat. 
there are some holes that just can't be patched, thus the snake this morning. <laughs> but oh, wait, 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 wait. Um, what, what snake? So, uh, yeah, my, my morning started chasing a garter snake out of my house. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I am very fortunate because there are many individuals that can't even find a one-bedroom apartment. So with all its flaws and charisma, I am very fortunate to have the home that I do have to rent. I just want to note that you're 20 years old. You speak with a sense of that place and a sense of yourself that seem far beyond your years. But when people who want to start a small business walk in and they meet a 20-year-old who's going to be their guide, what is their reaction? Um, very few people do know my age. Um, I well, look older I've just than changed I am. that. I guess I've just changed that. That's all right. Okay. I look older than I am. I speak much older than I am. I've always been an old soul. So generally, people have no issue with it. They know that I know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to lead them down any road that I personally have not walked or have experience in. And so that's where you see, I think, a little bit more of the rural culture. You know, letters behind your name don't mean as much around here as being genuine. Not only just genuine, but I also have lived here my whole life. So sometimes being a transplant with a PhD has less merit than being a born and raised Southeast Coloradan with no degree. I mean, I have a degree, but oftentimes there's more camaraderie just with having lived the rural lifestyle. Julie Worley, how has COVID and all of the economic realities of the pandemic affected the hopes of the young people you mentor and who might have bright ideas like starting a coffee shop in Manzanola? That's kind of a loaded question. Initially, of course, they were devastated. We were set to do a pop-up coffee shop in Manzanola with the student-led group, and COVID shut it down two weeks before we were going to do it, and they oh. were devastated. They've now bounced back. They realized that it's going to take effort now because with COVID now, everything is like you're starting over again. And so they're starting over to begin to raise money and, and begin to work through the plans of getting this coffee shop going. I have had more interest in entrepreneurship from the youth here in the last three months than I've had for, well, through COVID. But even before COVID hit, uh, kids didn't just call me out of the blue and say, hey, I have this project. Can you help me with it? I now have kids calling me out of the blue asking me that. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I don't know. I've tried to figure it out. I don't know whether they see that there's opportunity. I'm not sure what it is. I, I've spent some time thinking about it. Huh. What are some other ideas that they're bringing? Skin care products. A group of girls here in Lahana is doing that. There is a girl up in Crowley County in Ordway. She is doing some clothing apparel items. There's a couple of kids that have livestock projects that they're interested in growing their livestock projects. Some of these are results of FFA projects that they've done in school this past year. FFA, Future Farmers. Yeah, and then there's some 4-H projects. Others are just coming out of the kids want to try something and be their own boss. How young are some of these people? 
Well, the Youth Entrepreneurship Projects works with 5th through 12th graders. So I don't know how old you are when you're in 5th grade, but those kids, those kiddos. And a lot of the, many of the kids in Manzanola were in 5th grade when this idea first started. They're now in 8th grade or ninth grade, so it carries through. I can't fathom being even vaguely entrepreneurial at 5th grade. I guess I might have sold lemonade at that point. Yeah, yeah, right. Or mowed lawns, yes. There's a couple of lawn mowing projects for with kids that are in 4th, 5th, 6th grade. All right, before we go, uh, Jaden Rice... Do, do you imagine that you'll be there for the rest of your life? Is that what you see for yourself? And if not, what would it take to keep you there? Um, by my choice, yes. I would see myself living here for the rest of my life. I think the only thing that would drive me out is if for some reason I had to move for my job or there was no way for my husband to stay employed in the region. I really do love Southeast Colorado. It's special, not not just because it's a rural region. It is unique in its own right. I definitely second that. Well, Julie, Jaden, thank you so much for being with us. Thank Absolutely. you for asking us. Jaden Rice is with the Southeast Colorado Small Business Development Center in La Junta. Julie Worley runs a youth entrepreneurship program in the region. As 2021 comes to a close, we're hopscotching the state, revisiting some of the Coloradans we met when we took our show on the road again this past summer, socially distanced and masked. Our next stop, Northeast Colorado, specifically Columbine Elementary in Fort Morgan. The school uses languages to strengthen students' sense of community. Colorado Matters producer Carla Jimenez has the story. After an entire year interrupted by COVID, the students of Columbine Elementary School are back in the classroom learning in person. On this morning in Mrs. Pagan's fifth grade class, the students are learning about geography. The students take turns reading aloud from the textbook written in Spanish. Ten-year-old Amrin Chima is not a native Spanish speaker, but she reads like one. Las líneas de longitud están separadas por la misma distancia y se extienden de norte a sur entre el polo norte y el polo sur. These students are part of Columbine Elementary School's dual immersion program, where 50% of the curriculum is taught in English and the other half is taught in Spanish. The school implemented the program five years ago. The then superintendent wanted to bring it to Northeast Colorado. Nick Ng is the principal. The magic about having a uh, two-way program is that the native speakers can help their cohorts, the the ones who are learning Spanish, and then vice versa. We'll have uh, Spanish-speaking students, and then our our English-speaking students will help them in turn in the other half of the day. So it it really does build a, a, a strong, supportive community. Programs like these are rethinking how native Spanish speakers learn English. Dual immersion is designed to put students on an even playing field academically, since both cohorts are learning a new language. And ultimately, it helps both groups in the long run. A study of a similar program in Portland, Oregon, showed the students had a much higher level of English and reading comprehension overall. 
The dual immersion program at Columbine Elementary is based on a similar program in Utah. The long-term goal is to have both cohorts of students fluent in both languages by the time they graduate high school. When the program was first introduced, Ng said there was a little trepidation among parents. Parents would ask, like, um, how does it compare to the traditional uh, curriculum? Because we had to, we had to, we had to use brand new curriculum for this. Um, the, you know, they would ask, you know, will will our children uh, fall behind even because learning another language? Will they will they be struggling? And yet, the answer was yes, yes, it is harder. Uh, however. Uh, data has, uh, and we used other, P, other schools' data, it shows, yes, in the beginning, they, it might show that they are uh, not on par with the traditional cohorts. However, after third grade, they take off. Mm. They actually then, the, that curve uh, actually takes a sharper uh, direction up. Uh, and we're seeing it. The students in Mrs. Pagan's class have been learning through this program since the first grade. Ten-year-old Allie Salisbury says it was tough going at first. Yeah, like when we had like had to write things and do projects, I kind of was the one that was in the corner like doing nothing because I didn't know how to speak Spanish or write. Or so. When did you start to feel more confident about it? Um, I feel like second grade or third because mm-hmm. I had I did a year and then I knew what I was doing. So I got used to it the first year I did it, and now I'm in fifth grade and I still do it. She also told me the program has helped her communicate more easily with her native Spanish-speaking friends. If we say, can you go grab like something from a teacher and he doesn't know what we said, we'll say, puedo ir ve a la una clase, mm-hmm. and he'll go over there and do what we told him to. But we don't want him to feel like he has to do everything for us. We just want him to feel comfortable around us because he's our friend. These friendships are a designed side effect. Here's Ng again. What I anticipate happening is actually through their um, educational careers, Though these children are going to have a, a very strong bond. Um, the district is very supportive, so we're already in the, in the works of setting up middle school Spanish programs for them, and then in turn it will be high school. So we are following these children, we're monitoring, uh, we're adapting to their needs. Um, and those kids, they'll by default, they're going to find themselves in a lot of classes together. <laughs> so yeah, uh, uh, I don't, they don't have too much say in this one. But yeah, so we're they're going to be good friends for a long time. In the meantime, the students continue to build up their language skills. Ali's even found instances when she can use her Spanish outside of school. Like when we go out of the country and like go to like Mexico and Jamaica, like they all like speak Spanish. So, like, when they're, like, talking in Spanish, when we order food, like, we'll have to talk in Spanish. In Fort Morgan, I'm Carla Jimenez. When we come back, the Pikes Peak region beckons. A beloved neighborhood cleared away for a park. The houses may be gone, but the history won't be forgotten. This is a special Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
December, 1914. In Denver, 10-year-old David Sturgeon is too sick to join his family downstairs around their Christmas tree. His father, an electrician, has an idea. Paint some light bulbs, green and red, string them in a long circuit around a pine his son can see from his bedroom, and keep the tree lit through the night. People came from all around town to see the first electrified outdoor Christmas tree, and the next December, neighbors added lights to their own trees and homes. In the 1920s, Denver's mayor allowed a light display on City Hall. By the 1950s, this annual municipal project required 25,000 bulbs and 17 miles of wiring. It's a tradition that continues, including the stipulation that the city and county buildings stay lit in a colorful cacophony of cheer well into January to greet the stock show coming to town. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, another chance to hitch a ride with us. We're listening back to stories we gathered this past summer when we were on the road again. We were masked, vaccines had been out for a bit, and we were eager to reconnect. One of our stops was Colorado Springs, where CPR's Dan Boyce is based, and he filed something for us. Yeah, this story, it's about America the Beautiful Park. Oh, that green space, uh, like in the heart of downtown. That's right. I, I think of it as being kind of the flagship park for the city. It's bordered by Monument Creek to the west and then a wide section of railroad tracks on the east. There's a stunning sculptural steel bridge that just opened, which takes pedestrians from the park across those train tracks to the new U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum. It really is a beautiful community asset. However, at the same time, this plot of land has a complicated past for the city. Complicated? How so? Well, to put it bluntly, because in the 1990s, the city bulldozed an entire neighborhood to make way for this park. A neighborhood made up almost completely of working class immigrant and minority folks. Now, most of those people were long gone in the 90s, and the neighborhood had long fallen into a state of legitimate disrepair. But I met Leah Davis Witherow at the park to talk about this on a gorgeous summer day. She's a historian and curator at the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum. She recently compiled a permanent exhibit at the museum about this area, which used to be known as the Conejos neighborhood. In a way, this space is hollowed ground. So for decades, starting from the 1880s until the neighborhood was removed in the 1990s, this was a vibrant neighborhood. And it started out always as a sort of working class neighborhood, folks that worked on the railroad or worked in the brickyards. It was the site of our first Jewish institution in Colorado Springs, the Sons of Abraham Synagogue was here in, in this neighborhood. And in the 1920s and 1930s, it began to draw Hispano peoples from southern Colorado and northern New Mexico who were moving here, both fleeing the Mexican Revolution and also looking for opportunities, social, political, economic opportunities for themselves and their families. It's kind of hard for me to depict how small this neighborhood must have been because I walk into this park and it looks like, you know, a great size for a park you could probably have a pretty good soccer game uh, yep. in this field, but to imagine so many families living here, it must have been really tightly packed in. It was. So the park is about 16 acres, and it's deceiving, right, because it's open. We have this beautiful grassy plain. So if we were standing in this exact spot 
in say 1935 or 37, we would be looking at the Rio Grande grocery store, the heart of this neighborhood, operated by Severiano or Sam Malena and his wife Rosa and their family. He was like a father figure in this neighborhood. He was connected to every family. If we would have walked north or south on Conejos, we would have house by house by house would have occupied by families whose kids went to nearby schools, whose dads worked in nearby industries, and whose moms cooked homemade meals. This space was vibrant, and when we look at it today, although it is arguably really beautiful, it lacks the energy and it lacks the connection to the past. Seeing as this was an isolated, yep. multicultural neighborhood Absolutely. for decades, what was its reputation? in the city. Sure. Well, one of the challenges of this neighborhood is that it was out of sight, out of mind. I think about, uh, first of all, I think about the sound of living in this neighborhood in the 1930s or 40s. The railroad tracks are right there, bisecting this area, cutting folks off here. They had they couldn't safely go east unless they went up the viaduct or down and around. So um, this neighborhood is noisy. We have the creek on the west, and then soon we'll have I-25 in the 1950s, or they called it the Monument Valley Freeway back then. Now, something important about freeways is we know as a country, historically, these went through largely African-American or immigrant neighborhoods. They didn't go through wealthy neighborhoods. And because they're out of sight, out of mind, and because largely of the working class Hispano and black populations here, they are not top of mind for the movers and shakers, the decision makers in Colorado Springs. So over succeeding decades, this neighborhood lacked the sort of infrastructure improvements that other neighborhoods got. Things like street lamps and sidewalks and paved roads. And over time, the neighborhood became blighted. And then local officials used that blight and neglect as an excuse to tear this neighborhood down in the 1990s. It was consciously neglected by people who could have made decisions to provide the improvements that would mean that this neighborhood remained vibrant and vital. So their solution is to put in a park in this space. And I have to tell you, you know, reaction from Conejos neighbors or people that used to live here is really mixed. Some people are angry that their neighborhood was destroyed and that this, that they put a park right on top of it. Other people actually like the fact that once again this is a place that draws families and there's music and there's happiness and, and that brings them some sense of joy but it depends on who you talk to. So as we well know uh, the city this year celebrated its 150th anniversary the the very uh, fun to say sesquicentennial. <laughs> yeah. As we're standing here at this park in this place at this time as a historian what do you think the biggest takeaway is when we look at the history of the Conejos neighborhood. This this story, Conejos, this neighborhood, these people represent authentic Colorado Springs history. And we can't just talk about the great achievements or Pikes Peak or we, we have to talk about how some of our challenges in our past and the people that helped build the city. And 
when we're talking about people that lived in the Canadios neighborhood, they ran the trains, they worked on the tracks, they built the buildings, they hauled the trash. These are people that, that literally built Colorado Springs and they're important. And we can't understand Colorado Springs unless we include Conejos and lots of other stories that have been left out in the past. And it's more important than ever to have a more inclusive, complex, complete understanding of our history. Otherwise, we're just marketing. From the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum, that's curator Leah Davis-Witherow, speaking with our Southern Colorado reporter, Dan Boyce. Dan, you also met a former Conejos resident at this same park. Yeah. After I spoke with Davis-Witherow, we were joined by 82-year-old Josie Ontiveros. She grew up here in the 1930s and 40s. And Ryan, she's simply incredible. She is sharp as a tack. And she was really essential in putting together this Conejos neighborhood exhibit at the museum. She was even able to hand draw a map of the entire neighborhood for Davis Witherow, complete with uh, which families lived in which homes. Oh, my goodness. What a memory. Yeah, I'm jealous, frankly. So she met us toward the north end of the park, very close to where her childhood home used to be. They were houses that belonged to the railroad. What did they look like? They were yellow, and you're too young to remember that, but in every railroad, the places that had railroads, their houses were always yellow. And every year they would come and paint our houses yellow. It was always inside and outside, it was always yellow. But we got to live there because my father worked for the DNRG Railroad, and there was a group of men, and he had more seniority than anyone. So whoever had the highest seniority would get to live in that house. I was born right here off the ramp there that was Cuchara Street. When I was six years old, we were able to move into that house. It was rent-free. We paid utilities, no water. Uh, the outhouse was outside. And uh, I lived there till 1956. And now all we see is oh, just open grass and trees and bushes. And, trees. and this was the park. The park was right next to the store. Tell me about the character of the neighborhood, what it felt like to oh, grow up here. I, if I had to do it again, I would. I would. That's, you know, it's, uh, and then we knew all the neighbors. I could tell you the name of all the neighbors all the way to Cuchadas. And it looked so small. Now I say, how did all these houses fit here? And everybody here was Latino except for, oh, I'd say... Uh, the lady in the corner, Miss Ruth, she was uh, African-American. And then there was um, uh, a lady between the store and the park. Her name was Rosie, and she also was African-American. Everybody knew everybody. Everybody could say, well, I need some sugar. I'm going next door and ask Mrs. So-and-so, could I borrow a cup of sugar? Could I borrow a cup of coffee? And we would all you know, uh, help each other. We never had to put the blinds down. We never had to lock the doors. You say you left here in the 1950s, the neighborhood? 1956. You were still living in Colorado Springs when the city made its decision to kind of demolish the rest of the neighborhood and turn it into a park. Um, What was that time like for you and what were your feelings as you went through that time? Sad, sad. And especially when they start saying they weren't going to call it Conejos Park anymore. It was going to be Confluence Park. And then uh, they changed it to America the Beautiful, which is, it is beautiful, but I th- to me, it was Conejos Park, 
They should have stayed Conejo Park. I wonder if at some point did you just worry about your story being forgotten? Yeah, especially when they renamed everything. I said, well, you know, we're, you know, we're, we didn't exist to some people. But we did, we did. And yeah, I worried a lot too because all these people that were moving, they were already older and they had to relocate. And, and I don't know, uh, you know, we moved, so I don't know. And we lost track of a lot of these older people then and, and their kids and, and everyone. Uh, so yeah, and you wonder, well, why, why? Why did you do it? But instead of maybe remodeling the homes or they just felt that I don't know I don't know what they felt but it was destroyed it is a picturesque place we're standing here now yes. but how do you feel about it all now that we're, we're standing here today I think it's beautiful but I never come I never come here uh-uh. in fact I bought a well you got my purse I got a bunch of Kleenexes I said oh my god I'm gonna sit here and cry because I could see myself with my mom and dad and there's a big yard nothing but dirt and all these neighbors would oh they're out there so we'd all go out there and we'd play we'd have a good time and then about eight o'clock it was time for us to go in and they'd come in it was just a community that everybody got along with everybody everybody knew everybody everybody just a real real close community and then for them just to come and it was gone it was gone it was it was hard to believe, but it did happen. <laughs> yep. Ryan, you can hear Josie Ontiveros actually did get a bit choked up there at the end of our interview. But she quickly composed herself and said, you know what? When this land was our neighborhood, a lot of beautiful memories were formed. The way it is now, beautiful memories are being formed for the people who spend time here today. Mm. And then someday this land will have another use. And... Um, One more thing, Ryan, if you ever do walk around America the Beautiful Park, there is still one building left from its time as the Conejos neighborhood. Just one. It's the Chadbourne Community Church still stands at the park's south end, and it is still an operating church. It's been there for more than a century. Dan, thank you for this. You're welcome, Ryan. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce, who helped us take the show on the road again. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. Life I love is making music with my friends. And I can't wait to get on the road again. On the road again. As we planned our road trip earlier this year, we couldn't get the Willie Nelson song out of our head. So we thought to put it in the hands of Colorado artists, like Inea Lujan of Pueblo, who's a sixth-generation Coloradan. On the road again, like a band of family, we go down the highway. We're the best of friends, insisting that the world keep turning our way. And our way is on the road again. Luhan is well-versed in country music and considered a true-to-form cover, but opted for something different. Like, what would Motown do, or what would Phil Spector, you know, how would he produce this song if he got his hands on it? I just start to think of music in terms of, like, colors and in different landscapes, or even eras of film. Like, you know, I had just got done watching Goodfellas. It's got so much great 50s and 60s era music, especially like girl groups. 
that was definitely swimming around in my frame of reference and subconscious when I sat down to do this version of it. So make some space, Ronettes. On the road again, going places that I've never been, seeing things that I may never see again, and I can't wait to get on the road again. Inea Lujan has long performed, recorded, and produced music in Southern Colorado. He and his former folk band, The Haunted Windchimes, put out six albums, got some national attention even, with an appearance on a Prairie Home Companion. Lujan then formed the vintage pop duo In Plains with his bandmate and partner Desi Garcia. Most recently, Lujan has embarked on a solo project after his split with Desi. I, I'm so sorry This track, Phases, came out in late 2019. Wuhan wrote it at a particularly difficult time, even before the trauma of the pandemic. He was dealing with a divorce, some health problems, and a relapse in his longtime struggle with what he calls pill addiction. Writing Phases was Wuhan's way of mourning a past life and inviting in a transition. That song came out of the ashes of all of these tragedies that I was going through, but also was this sort of glimmer of hope and all that, of understanding that there's no further down I can really go at this point, kind of having that rock bottom moment of realizing that if I want to be alive and if I want to continue creating, like I really need to do something drastic. And that song led to my sobriety, led to me relieving myself from some of this pressure that I've felt all of my life to be a musician, to be successful, to have a successful marriage and relationship and, and what it means to kind of navigate all of those challenges. This was me kind of like reclaiming some ownership over the fate of my own life. I'm learning to Then the pandemic, which shut down the music industry and turned the only life Luhan knew upside down. I've basically been a touring musician since I was 16, and 2020 was the first year I didn't spend on the road in, I think, 15 years. But Luhan says the downtime was a blessing in disguise. The pandemic brought some financial stability, forcing him to explore other sources of income, finding steady work doing graphic design. It also allowed him to focus on self-care. I kind of took this time as a way to hit the reset button. I got sober in the process. I leaned into things like filmmaking and photography and just tried to learn. Taking time to kind of have some clarity and self-care and these themes that aren't synonymous with, you know, that rock star lifestyle. I'm one with my darkness to Three types of feelings I get. Four, 
Like so many musicians, Inea Lujan adapted to a new reality of virtual shows and live streams, including to celebrate the release of his solo debut, Do What You Want. As for his hometown of Pueblo, he says the art scene has fared relatively well. There's been a great community effort to make sure that the art galleries and spaces were kind of still well attended. And we, you know, we've just done the best we could to follow CDC regulations and mask up and still try to participate in the community as we felt it was safe to do so. And then through grant funding and things like that, I mean, Pueblo, from my vantage point, has has made it through okay, you know, and we have a lot of community organizers and artists to thank for that. You've won, have lost it to Inea Lujan of Pueblo speaking with me in August for Colorado Matters On the Road Again. On top of the new solo EP, he has a vinyl-only release called Echo Brain. And that is our peripatetic special, thanks to a team that never hesitates to ask for directions. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Get on the road again